Hello and welcome to a Bicon podcast. Indeed, for joining me. Thank you. Um, by way of introduction, I should say that I first met uh, Sarit when she was serving uh, in the uh, in the intelligence and intelligence officer in the Northern Command, of which she served overall for 15 years and still serves in the IDF reserves as a lieutenant colonel. Um, as a civilian, Sarit founded ALMA, which is a non-profit independent research center, which specializes in Israeli security challenges on its northern borders. And uh, I mean, we, we spoke to those that listened to our podcast last week. Um, we spoke to Nitzan Nouriel that discussed kind of the events on the Lebanese border last week. And I thought it was appropriate given what the events of, uh, of Beirut and the ongoing tension that we talk uh, to Sarit today. Um, if I can start, and first of all, if we just reflect on the horrific explosion in Beirut, I know in the past this podcast has had listeners in, uh, in Lebanon, and if we have any listeners today, then obviously I want to send our full condolences and wish all the injured a, a full recovery. Um, so if I can ask you, first of all, the, the official account by the Lebanese government explaining of the, the Russian ship, the, the Rosas, that was bringing explosives on the way to Mozambique, do you find this explanation credible? Uh, well, I don't have specific information that contradicts that. I think this is what happened uh, also when you look at the, the explosion and the damage it created. So it makes sense that it was uh, the outcome of uh, some kind of, uh, of a gas that was stored there. The big question is what caused uh, these uh, containers of, of gas, of ammonia, uh, to explode? And I think here the answer may be a little bit more complicated. So do you think there is a, that, that Hezbollah is, is involved in this, is implicated? Look, uh, in any way you're going to look at that, Hezbollah is involved, uh, even if it's a regular accident, which this is probably the case, because Hezbollah is the one that actually controls the airport and the seaport in Lebanon. So uh, even if it was not explosives of Hezbollah that were stored nearby, and this is something that we truly don't know, and it was just an accident that was caused uh, from, I don't know, something else, Hezbollah is responsible because Hezbollah is the one who controls them. Right. Um, if, we, if we just take a step back, I mean, as I said last week, we were focused on the, uh, on the high state of alert um, on the northern border. It's very clearly very close to where you, to where you live. Um, where do you think we stand now with regard to the, the potential of a, of a revenge strike by Hezbollah specifically on the border? I think the rationale and, and not surprising uh, assessments here in Israel is that Hezbollah uh, will not uh, carry out a terrorist attack against Israel at this time. Uh, it is much more busy with uh, the explosion from various reasons that we'll discuss probably in a minute. Um, and yet, uh, to be on the safe side, the Israeli uh, chief of staff, uh, Kohavi, uh, directed the army to continue the alert for at least the next uh, few days. Mm. So do you think there's a, there's a scenario that it goes quiet, but then kind of the IDF needs to stay on a prolonged state of alert that uh, after the, this immediate crisis blows down, that Hezbollah would then look to, uh, to strike? I think it will take time. Mm. At, at least a month or two since the, the damage in Beirut is so big and Hezbollah has to defend itself um, from the criticism inside Lebanon. Uh, I can't imagine 
what, uh, how busy were Hezbollah combatants uh, or terrorists in the last few days to hide uh, any sign to their ammunition in areas that were damaged, uh, to understand what's the damage of the ammunition that was stored in the seaport and in mm. the kilometers in Beirut surrounding it. So I don't see Hezbollah in the next month or two uh, going back to threat uh, Israel, at least not from Lebanon, maybe from Syria. Right. Well, we'll talk about Syria um, shortly. Um, I mean, just on the, on the kind of the criticism that Hezbollah is facing, um, for, for our audience that are not following kind of the Arabic media as closely as you and your organization is, can you give us a flavor of some of the kind of the, the, the commentary and analysis in the, in the Lebanese media? Sure. Um, I, of, of course, I need to put things in context and to say that criticism against Hezbollah uh, didn't start two days ago. Uh, it is something that is ongoing in social media. There is a strong lobby of uh, opponents to Hezbollah in Lebanon um, for years. Uh, Lebanon is not a dictatorship, meaning that people can express uh, their criticism against Hezbollah. The fact that the economic situation in Lebanon deteriorated deeply before even the COVID-19 brought people out to the street protesting against uh, the Lebanese government, which Hezbollah today controls the Lebanese government. So everybody, if, even if the word Hezbollah is not said by the protesters, everybody understands where this is heading. Uh, and this is without talking about uh, the criticism against Hezbollah in the Arab media, and the fact that in the Arab states, uh, since the civil war in Syria, there is a deep crisis between uh, Hezbollah and uh, the Sunni states uh, in the region. So in this respect, uh, Hezbollah is uh, experiencing uh, quite uh, difficulties, yet it looks like two the contradicted trends. On the one hand, a lot of criticism against Hezbollah, but on the other hand, if you look at the political process in Lebanon in the past few months, Hezbollah gained more power because they actually took over the government. So in, as you've mentioned, I mean, the, 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 the stress that the government was under in the crisis even predates uh, the, the coronavirus. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the economic collapse, high unemployment, uh, kind of the, the lack of electricity on the limited hours of electricity that they have, even food insecurity. What, what can the Lebanese government do about this? Where, 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 are, the, where are their levers of control? Uh, it's funny to say it, or it's sad to say it, but uh, this crisis, the uh, economic crisis in Lebanon, mainly derived from two, uh, I can say, maybe three reasons. First is the corrupted system. Second is the black economy, which is also corruption by Hezbollah. And third, which is very important, is the sanctions against Hezbollah uh, and the demand of the IMF and the international community from the government of Lebanon uh, to disarm Hezbollah uh, uh, and then to receive uh, financial aid. What actually will happen now, uh, since the explosion and since it is a humanitarian disaster in Beirut, a lot of money will come in. Uh, a lot of money will come in, a lot of financial assistance will come in, and the big question is whether the Lebanese uh, this time will, use, will, will actually use the money uh, to rebuild Beirut or again, the money will be lost uh, for corruption and, and will end up in the hands of Hezbollah or other corrupted uh, political players. Are there any kind of forces in the opposition that we should look out for that can, that, that can that are, are on a political uh, sense, can, can, can rival Hezbollah? 
yes, and again, in also the opposition will have to get rid of old habits of corruption. The corruption is not only in Hezbollah, it's everywhere in Lebanon. And this is what the Lebanese are saying now when you speak about what's happening in the media in Lebanon. I think that's the main message of the Lebanese. All of you are corrupted. All of you didn't take care of us. All of you are a, a, a responsible to what happened. Um, just come back on one of your earlier comments, the idea that Hezbollah basically control, control the port area. So there is that, that overall responsibility. Is that... Is that being articulated again amongst the, in, the, in, in the Lebanese media against the, the, the public discourse that, that, is, that, that blames Hezbollah for part of this? No, this is something that I'm saying as an Israeli. Mm. I don't see that uh, happening specifically in the media in Lebanon, maybe not yet. I do see again in the media in Lebanon blaming the whole leadership of Lebanon. And today Hezbollah is very dominant in the leadership of Lebanon. Mm. On another tack, I know your organization, Alma, recently published uh, some, some fascinating new research, uh, ironically about kind of the, the weapon storage of, of Hezbollah um, in civilian structures. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what your research found? Yes, uh, we have found the database in Wikimapia. We search for military sites. And surprisingly enough, and we were surprised to find it, we found uh, sites of uh, launching for Hezbollah missiles, launching sites. And uh, we evaluate the database as reliable because we researched, uh, try to understand who uh, uploaded the sites and the, the entity that uploaded the sites put a lot of effort to hide its identity, meaning they used multiple IPs um, and somebody asked to delete some of the sites, which also uh, raised the credibility of the information. And three of the sites were also published by Netanyahu two years ago in the UN. Uh, again, a fact that also raised uh, our understanding that this information is real. We analyzed the sites, and all these sites are actually part of the Hezbollah tactic of the human shield to use the people in Beirut as human shields and those of us who understand how Hezbollah operate and uh, research in Hezbollah for years see that the sites exactly looks like uh, the way Hezbollah use uh, the civilians as human shield. You need a small open area inside a very crowded area. Uh, probably the missiles are hidden in the buildings surrounding the open area. That way they can be brought very quickly and be launched uh, from there. I must say that uh, just if I'm tying it to uh, uh, what happened uh, two days ago, the sites are mostly, the sites we discovered, okay? There are probably more, but the mm. sites we have found are mostly not in the area that was damaged, but in areas which are a little bit to the south, closer to the airport and in the Shiite areas of Beirut, where the damage was very little. Ah, I mean, that was my next question. That had we had we seen those areas within the uh, the uh, the diameter of the of the explosion, presumably we would have seen secondary no. and tertiary explosions. I am positive that Hezbollah has much more than twenty eight military sites in Beirut. Mm. The twenty eight that I found in open sources were not in the area that was damaged, or maybe very little damage. 
Okay, very interesting. I mean, and has it, do you think, I mean, how where do you think of the international community or, or, I mean, it's, it's Unifil's, Unifil's mandate doesn't go up to, to Beirut, but are yeah. there, are there levers within, within the international community of, of which we, we, this can be, uh, this, this, this can be raised and, uh, and, and the concern shared? Of course, because uh, these sites are completely contradicted to international law, the use of the uh, human shield, and it's contradicted to 15, uh, 59, uh, the mm. United Nations Security Council resolution that said that uh, Hezbollah should be disarmed. Uh, so it's not about UNIFIL here, it's about the other decisions. A resolution. And, 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 the, and, and the receptiveness of the international community remains, uh, remain, remains pretty quiet. The report received a lot of exposure in many uh, media outlets, uh, less in English, but you know, uh, in Europe, uh, in Arabic, uh, in Persian, uh, Spanish, French, Russian, Polish, German, uh, and others. Uh, but uh, now the, the real question is exactly that. Uh, eventually, the bottom line is how do you take this kind of information and demand uh, the Lebanese government to do something about it? And I think that now, since the explosion, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, and I can understand that. Even as an Israeli, I can understand that it's a little bit more difficult to demand uh, the Lebanese government to disarm Hezbollah. So I think that what should happen is that there should be a very strict uh, inspection uh, on the Lebanese government with, with the question of where the money is going. Because uh, I understand mm -hmm. that uh, we cannot uh, refrain from uh, transferring uh, humanitarian aid and finance to the Lebanese now at this time. But uh, people must understand that if there will be no uh, control over the money flow, the, the currency flow, eventually uh, the assistance will, will not go to the welfare of the Lebanese. Yeah, yeah, we hear that, hear that concern. Um, just on UNIFIL for a moment, later on this month, uh, the, their mandate needs to be renewed. Um, again, Probably in the context of uh, of the of the explosion, there there's less appetite for the international community to kind of to to push and and, and pressure the the Lebanese government. Um, but that aside, um, what, what are the the strengthening of Unifil that you would look for the UN to uh, to try and uh, to try and bring about? Wow, um, I will be honest with you, Richard. I think that uh, um, in the UN those who are making the decisions should understand that uh, the only, the only um, way that UNIFIL will actually fulfill its mandate is that UNIFIL will enter the areas where Hezbollah is active and uh, find the rockets uh, of Hezbollah that are hidden again inside the villages of South Lebanon. But doing so also means that there will be violent clashes between Hezbollah and UNIFIL because Hezbollah will not let them just, uh, will not welcome them coming mm. into these places. <laughs> and uh, I think that in the UN, uh, the uh, decision makers should understand that if there, the UN is not willing to confront Hezbollah, something should be deeply changed in the way we think about UNIFIL mission. 
Mm, very interesting. This is a, a conversation that we should continue probably uh, on another day. Um, if I can just uh, just tur turn our attention uh, eastward onto the uh, onto Syria. Um, this week, kind of for the last the last week or ten days, have, for me, have provided kind of a fascinating example of kind of the different uh, um, operational doctrines that the IDF employs with regard to Lebanon and Syria. Whilst in Lebanon, they seem to be treading on eggshells, very careful not to uh, not not to uh, create further dynamic of violence. And I'm referring, of course, to the kind of shooting not to kill, even though the Lebanon uh, cell of Hezbollah crossed over into Israeli territory, they were then scared off and were able to escape. Whilst when we see just early this week, the uh, a cell of four um, combatants laying a cell of laying IEDs on the Syrian border, they were obviously struck hard. And more than that, the next night, Israel took responsibility for striking uh, um, observation posts and intelligence collection systems, part of the Syrian armed forces. Um, I mean, uh, part of the obvious way of explaining that discrepancy and the deterrence they have with with, with Lebanon, how do you assess kind of the, uh, the, the, the Iranians' continued agenda to try and entrench themselves in Syria? Hmm. Definitely. They, though everything you described, and I agree with every word, uh, the Iranians are not going to stop. They will continue to try, and Israel will continue to try to prevent uh, them from doing so. Uh, the Iranians will continue to try to deepen their uh, influence, including military influence in Syria, no matter what the Israelis or the Russians or the Syrians uh, think. And the Israelis will continue uh, to fight that, uh, at least as long as uh, the anti-aircraft uh, missiles that are being launched against our jets uh, are not uh, causing uh, the damage that the Syrians would want them to cause. So as I said, Israel kind of took took full responsibility for this strike uh, over the border. Um, however, on the on the same evening, there were there were other airstrikes even further eastward on the Iraqi border in the Abu Kamal area. Mm. Uh, what, what did you make of what do you make of those strikes? I cannot confirm since I truly don't. I'm, I'm truly not sure that the strikes in Abu Kamal uh, were Israeli strikes. Uh, in the past, there were. Uh, reports of Israeli strikes in uh, Al Bukamal that Israel never claimed responsibility for, but uh, specifically in this time, I'm truly not sure that it was Israel. Mm. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, if we can speculate, if it wasn't Israel, I mean, do we think do, do we think the strikes still happen? Are there other forces that have a that have air, air capability that also have a? I mean, the the targets were were yeah. again the these the, the Shiite supporters and uh, and proxies. Al Bukamal um, is a very unstable area. There, there is violence there that is not connected to Israel whatsoever, uh, in, including between the in, between inside the Shiite axis itself. Again, I don't, mm. I'm not sure what exactly happened this week, but in general, I can say that in El Bukamal you can see strikes of ISIS against Shiite militias. You can see confrontations between Shiite militias uh, and the Syrian army. You can see uh, strikes of the Americans sometimes. And as I've said, sometimes also probably Israeli strikes. I don't know, we, we couldn't point the finger of exactly what happened this week over there. Mm. Very interesting. Well, we will continue to, uh, to follow it. Thank you very much indeed for your insight and analysis today. Thank you, Richard.